in this 78 show where I'm chatting to 78 music writers and critics, including you, Stevie Chick. So a chick and a brick this evening. Um, chick and brick. <laughs> we, could, we could get into some, like, like what Bob Harris and Danny Baker are doing, going round various yes, yeah. music venues and reminiscing about the dim and distant past. Which is within yeah, living yeah. memory. Um, about... The past isn't all that distant for me, but it's definitely dim, which might be problematic. But yeah, let's let's jump straight in. Now we're talking on the the Thursday of the first Glastonbury since 2019. I have less than zero desire to actually go to Glastonbury. Will you be watching? Will you be reviewing in any way? Uh, I won't be reviewing in any way. I'm actually I'm actually going to see Green Day tomorrow night to review them. Oh uh, wow! London Stadium. I've never been to Glastonbury. Just uh, it sounds cynical, but just being in a field with that many people having yeah. a really good time would scare the living shit out of me. I think. But um, it, it's funny. I was saying to my partner this morning, like, uh, oh well, you know, Glastonbury really is the least us festival I could think of, or, or, or the, just the one. It's funny. It's like it's the big festival in a weird way. It, it, it's got f- fewer artists I was thinking than I would be interested in. Who are, kind of more obscure, more uh, more bizarre, etc. And and then we went through the list of the the people who were playing and and I was just like, yeah, I'd see them. I'd see them. I'd see them. I mean admittedly it, it skews more towards the uh the easier listening end of the spectrum. But I would I would definitely I think, you know, enjoy to be in the crowd with a with a, a, a plastic cup of cider listening to Crowded House or Oh yes. I mean even Paul McCartney, because that's the big thing, isn't it? Especially how dare he turn eighty so soon after we fell in love with his like twenty nine year old self in Get Back or, or however old he, course, he is in that, yeah. I feel like it reacquaints you with like the uh, the the macro in all our hearts. I think sudden... Paul McCartney is rock and roll. Let me explain because I'm just making this up as I go along. Came of age with Eddie Cochran and um, Skiffle. Um, became part of the most successful band by any metric, sales and. Uh, chart positions. He is, however, an eccentric billionaire who is who works out of a, his office in Soho, um, who goes into the Hobgoblin shop in, in Soho. I said, oh, do you get McCartney in here? And he went, yeah. Uh, the owner went, yeah. He comes in, blows his harmonica and gets out. And that reminded me, he is an eccentric wow. billionaire because no one, apart from maybe Michael Jackson, who nicked his catalogue, has had that kind of fame. Have you been close to... What any McCartney-sized figure? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's funny people sort of say like, "Who's the most f- famous person you've interviewed?" And for a very long time, uh, all I could say was Spike Milligan, who I had the, yeah. uh, the dubious fortune to interview in the last years of his life. Uh, he was re-promoting, or he was promoting a, a repress of his Hitler Diaries mm-hmm. books. He was doing a signing in Tower Records in Piccadilly. And uh, I was sent to interview him for the Melody Maker. It was just one of the most bizarre things because he was tired and crotchety and he didn't really want to be there. And, and one of his kids was leading him around and he just was really fed up. And I just felt like, God, he shouldn't be interviewed by me and he also shouldn't be uh, signing books. But he, he, he made some incredibly funny and off-colour jokes uh, in, in during the interview. Uh, someone called up from the front desk, uh, from the tills, uh, basically calling for people in the... Uh, staff room to come down and jump on the tills and he answered the phone and he just he, he just said hello you're a friendly neighborhood rapist <gasps> and the person on the other end of the line obviously was like what and he went you're a friendly neighborhood rapist and then the other person obviously put the phone down he put the phone down and he looked at me with complete innocence 
and said they they put the phone down. So that's I, I think I think that's probably still the most famous person. Dude, I had a disastrous interview with Jay Z very early on in his, in his career. Oh, and but the most recent person I've interviewed was Herbie Hancock. Yeah, he's um, in town. I'm just about to read a review of a London show of his. Yeah, I mean, he was he was an amazing experience. Again, you know, when when we've now reached a point where like the really archetypal figures in in rock and pop and jazz, if they're still alive, are probably in their eighties, yeah. and, and that can go that can go both ways. But he was very lucid, and his his memory is very sharp. He's still very plugged in. As it should a, a be. If you're playing yeah, well, piano yeah, exactly. every day of your life, you have to memorize the notes. The the thing that he pointed out is that rocket. It's a mm-mm, it's a second. It, it's very rare mm-mm, for a, a piece, for a melody to begin just by going up a second. Um, oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. Which is it's something that I, I don't know where. It may have been him talking about it, but I am now of the age where I can get jazz. I'm 34 and a half. So jazz right. is that great unexplored territory. Uh, and I must just iterate, for those who don't know Stevie Chick or just know him by the byline, he's written four books that we'll discuss. Uh, he's got plenty of work for The Guardian and for Mojo. He's chatted to, guided by voices, The Offspring, Yardak, Bob Mould of Huskadoo, King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizards, or the Lizard Wizards, I can never remember, Run the Jewels. I'm still not sure. Yep, and he's seen concerts by Tony Bennett, Eagles, The Who, 21 Pilots, Sting and Shaggy, uh, you say please don't do the Roxanne Boombastic mashup, uh, Orbital, Pixies, <laughs> Interpol, Hosier, Run the Jewels, Corn, Queens of the Stone Age, Mastodon, Andrew W.K., D'Angelo, Green Day. So you've seen Green Day before. I've seen them, I've seen them twice before, and I'll be honest with you, the first time I saw them was, was at King's College in like 99 or something, before they'd done Yeah, American before American Idiot. Idiot, so they were kind of... And they, they were slightly in the doldrums, and I just remember like at one point they invited a kid on stage and handed him a guitar... And then they let him play guitar on a song. I just thought that is that's you know I'm quite a softie really, and I was just like that was. And then I went to see him a second time, and they did it again, and I was furious. So I have to be honest: if if they don't want to lose a star, they better not bring someone on the stage because if they do, it's just it's just show business at this Billy, point. Billy, um, Billy Joe Armstrong is fifty. We're getting to the stage where these pop punkers <gasps> and the chap from The Offspring. I loved your interview with The Offspring. It's one of the best interviews I've read. Because I knew oh, nothing about the fact he was a microbiologist who is of quite reputable status, and his hobby now is to play Pretty Fly for a White Guy and Americana and Smash to various elderly punks. And by elderly, I mean in their forties. Um, do you know yes. Jim Worth, by the way? Yes, I do know Jim Worth. Yes, I worked with Jim at UEFA, and he the, the office conversation was always full of weird bands that Six Music play. And Jim writes reviews for Uncut and his wife, Victoria Siegel, is a music and TV critic. So I've, I've been that close to someone who writes for the rock press, but even he said that it wasn't now, the rock press is not in the glory days that it were. You mentioned Melody Maker. The kids yeah. won't know Melody Maker. We won't even know NME, which is online only. So by the technology has moved on, I, I love the piece that you wrote about the Quietus, five years of the Quietus in 2013. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you still peruse that website? It's now 15, coming up to 15 years. I do, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I still read it often. I still, I still write from quite a oh, lot good. as well. It's, uh, it's just a fantastic thing. Like, it's, at some point in my career, just to throw us out of chronological 
space. Um, I, I ended up helping to start a magazine called Careless Talk Cost Lives. And subsequent to that, uh, myself and the photographer Steve Gullick started a magazine that was like the sequel to it called Loose Lips Sink Ships. And the entire purpose of these magazines was just to cover the stuff that we thought wasn't getting attention. And it was in the early zeros. And um, it, it was just a sense that there were all these exciting bands and we thought they deserved coverage. And the music press, as it existed then, wasn't really checking out the little stuff that we were interested in. And um, so I've always been slightly interested in that, that, that off off the beat, off the cuff stuff. But when you talk about like all these magazines no longer being here, it, it is quite stunning, really. It's like the, the memory of this stuff is, is slipping away, I guess. And it's interesting to see what replaces it. And um, I don't think it's there yet. I think in, in many ways, the sort of disruption of the internet and uh, the new technology has kind of outstepped, I guess, where music journalism itself is going. But um, I, I do love reading uh, The Quietus and sort of feel it's in that same space that we used to do with Careless Talk and Loose Lips. Uh, but John Doran and um, uh, and the team there just do such a fantastic job. Luke is just uh, an absolute yes, workhorse. I mean, I, the thing is, I know how hard doing something like that is and how thankless it is. So it's uh, it's just amazing that they're out there doing it. Yeah. Uh, urgent, evangelical and full-blooded is what either you or John wanted the MO to be. A bit like the old music press with the hip young gunslingers who are now writing novels or are Julie Birchall. Uh, but... I've been reading, for the last 15 years, I've been reading Pete Perfides and um, Simon Price when he was writing for The Independent. And I loved, and I've mentioned this before, to Michael Hand, The Guardian Film and Music. That was my Friday morning reading. And I've met John Harris since he's moved into political journalism. But he wrote a book, Segway, about Britpop. And I just want to point out that you, Stevie Chick, were at Queen Mary, which is East London, between 1993 and 1996. Wow. You must have been at a gig every night of the week with someone who was going to go on top of the pops within weeks and men's yeah, I, 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 I do remember that um, the live act who entertained us on our freshers evening or the freshers disco or whatever we decided to call it back then was uh, My Life Story because Jake Shillingford was, uh, I think he was an alumnus of, of uh-huh. Queen Mary. So that was, that was probably as close as rushing up against Britpop as I got. I did, I did love Blur. Um, partially because I was much younger and more handsome then and, and someone uh, in a club mistook me for Damon Albarn, which is absolutely unthinkable now. I now look like a, a, a weird, bald-bearded eccentric from an American sitcom, but um, it genuinely happened, and in an incredibly narcissistic way, I just sort of felt like, well, I should check out Blur then. Very interesting. Because my head was entirely in grunge, was not interested in the English stuff, and then... Um, I thought Blur were brilliant. So, so, yeah. so you saw that moment that uh, Alex James has talked about in his book, and there was a great interview with Damon that I read at a train station a long time ago. It may have been with Jude Rogers, uh, who's got a book out as well. There was a moment, which is when Kurt Cobain shot himself, that I was six, so I was too young. But even I knew yeah. that there were these British guitar bands, I call it Knoll Rock, um, mm. but having since read about Blur and read The Last Party, the whole British movement almost scrambled to fill that void. So I know that you've seen Eddie Vedder live and uh, you're into grunge and um, modern alternative rock, which we'll get to because you've written four books and are writing a fifth. That that period of British music, uh, when did Britpop or, or the British guitar rock explosion end and did it end when you were a music critic? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think, I think basically um, I arrived at a, a 
quite a weird, quiet juncture. I started professionally, I think it was the, the end of 1997, and uh, it was definitely the sort of tail end of Britpop. Um, the big bands, the big guns, uh, Oasis and Blur were still doing the numbers, but they, they were kind of the, the, the B-list and the C-list bands were falling away, and um, dance music had, had sort of crossed over a bit more. And um, so it was this weird moment where it wasn't really clear what was big and what was going to be next. And it was it was kind of interesting. They didn't feel like there were many big bands, but it was this sort of space where interesting things could flourish slightly. Um, but it was really quiet. And I have to say, like, there was this real sense of, you know, just tapping into John's, the, the title of John's book, of arriving at the end of the party and all the good stuff had gone and, and all that was left was the sort of putting the tins of lager in the bin. Mm. Um, and actually, when I ended up teaching at City University a little while later, one of my students said, he felt he'd arrived at a moment when the party was over. But just just shortly after that, um, I was out in uh, uh, in in Texas covering the South by Southwest Festival in 2001, and uh, a friend who worked at a distribution company had sent me the second White Stripes album, De Steel, um, and I'd loved it, but no one in the world seemed to know who they were. Uh, John Peel had been championing, but it hadn't really sort of broadened out beyond that. And, and at that that festival in Texas. In 2001, I went to see them play just because I felt like they're never going to come to London. And they were astonishing. And I was there with this photographer, Steve Pulley, who's you know, probably the biggest genius I've ever met in, in photography and probably in magazines. He, he took every picture you've ever loved of Kurt Cobain. He's just a, an absolute genius photographer. Two songs in, he just turned to me and said, take my bag. And uh, and then he was up on stage taking the first pictures. Wow. Of the white stripes, I've got a framed copy in it. But but we um we, we sort of took it back and we were like, this is you, you've got to cover this. You've got to let us have some space in the live pages for this. And they went for it. And and then that summer they exploded. So I, I think that's the funny thing about music is is it can often feel like it's a fallow period, but it's it's just waiting for the next thing to explode. But you're... I will also say that I believe very fervently that every year is the best year for music if you're listening hard enough. And and this year just a wash with records that I think are brilliant. Every week something is blowing my mind and I don't know if there's an external reason for that, but th- there's always really exciting stuff happening, even if it doesn't necessarily catch on with the, the public consciousness. Have you read James Acaster's book about how he had a breakdown in 2017 and so he went back to 2016 and looked at all the records that came out and effectively bought up 2016 in music? <laughs> I haven't read the book, although I'm a massive James Acaster fan, and I, I love his stand-up and uh, his his podcast and and all of his appearances on TV. So I haven't checked that out. I reached the age I'm, I'm 46 now, Ooh. where a lot of years I can't really remember what I was excited about that year. I do slightly feel that for the last six or seven years. My favourite album has generally been one by the OCs because they put one out. Well, they put three out nearly every year and they're all fantastic. So I can guess that. But there have been so many interesting things that have sprung up. I'm almost struggling to sort of file it away in years now. Well, it's, I, I it's... have to ask you what your favourite OCs album is today. Oh, to, right this minute. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think my answer is always Putrefriers too. All right. I'll look at... strictly, I'll look strictly speaking, is an EP, but it's uh, it's got that kind of half of it's like a psychedelic beat band and the other half is a band doing crowd rock jams that can would do in 12 minutes they pack it into three. Oh, good uh, yeah, good that is good writing 
That's really. It's like it's like it's like you've got a blender. It's a, my favorite is I like eighties music. Oh, so you like Public Enemy and Madonna? You like Gary yeah. Newman and Grandmaster Flash? Eighties music. You do That's like. Bizarre. You do like this Salt record. You gave it five stars. What a mm. what an insane left turn. This is the guy in Flow who is behind yeah. it. And he has worked with Adele and Michael Kiwanuka. And he got a choir to effectively, and an orchestra, and you don't hear many orchestras in pop music nowadays. This is at the vanguard of creativity. They put out albums on Spotify and then withdraw them after three months. Yeah. Assault exciting in as much as they are mysterious. I think that's definitely part of it. I think th- I think it's a combination of it's a great story. Uh, the mystery of it is really compelling and seductive. Uh, their refusal to engage with the industry beyond putting the music out there uh, is definitely... They play hard to get, which always works with the press. Um, but what I will say is I think the mystery is backed up by the music. And, and for me, this album has come out this year... Uh, it's just it, it's air isn't it is that that is yes. the title yes it is uh, it, it's i mean it, it blew my mind and it, it's it, i think it, it, it's a very canny tapping into something else they have twisted away from what they were doing in this other direction but i think there's a lot of interest there has been a lot of interest in like sort of spiritual jazz and fire music the last few years but i, I think there is this sort of period in jazz and soul this sort of billowing psychedelic thing that, that's kind of tipping over into new age and classical music. I think it was a fantastic moment that kind of they're re-exploring and, and they're doing it in a really fresh way. And I just, I just, you know, it's funny. I've not listened to it a huge amount since it's come out just because I've always got a billion and one things to listen to, but I'm very excited for when the vinyl comes out. Cause what I want to do is play that very loud in the front room. With yeah. The windows open. That would be a lovely experience. Is your, you said you're on babysitting duties. Are the kid or kids into that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, she's. I've got. I've got a daughter, and she's eight. She's not currently. I don't think she's really necessarily aware of salt, uh, but she is the world's biggest King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard fan. Oh well, she's uh, lucky because they have put out something like twenty records in the last five years. She's got a lot to listen to. She really. Uh, not a good infinity is, is her favourite, but she will be found every now and again wandering around the house, uh, just singing Rattlesnake or crumbling castle to herself so she's definitely she used to be the world's smallest uh joanna newsom fan but i i think she's she's moved on she's more into the the sort of prog psych punk rock stuff now wow. uh, the thing i love about joanna newsom her husband andy samberg met her at one of her gigs and went backstage i love that story and joanna is i think she's become a, a parent and andy's the one doing a lot of work but yeah i yeah, remember hearing uh, joanna's stuff again like nothing else yeah, she's. I mean, she's astonishing. She's she's really fantastic. Yeah, well, I, I remember my daughter being ever so slightly jealous when she found out that Joanna Newsom was pregnant. Yeah, just a bit like, no, <laughs> but I want to be her baby. Something like that. I don't know. But, um... uh, I remember trying to get through some of those albums, and it's it's tough. I love this piece that you wrote in 2010. I think I'm going to quote it. Being a music fan is like supporting England. You are not a football fan, Stevie Chick, but you uh, sympathise with the painful and the heartfelt nature of seeing a bad performance or hearing a bad record. One flash of 1966-style inspiration and then slowly, painfully fades away. Talking about not fading away, it's the Rolling Stones this weekend in Hyde Park. Oh, wow. Okay. I've, you know, I've not seen the Stones. I absolutely adore the Stones, but I feel very strongly 
the I want to see the Stones in like seventy one or seventy three, um, which isn't to say that the bands, the heritage bands, can't really still put on a great show. I've seen I just saw Elton a couple of weeks ago, and it was it was the very entertaining. Human jukebox. The human yeah. he is. I mean, every, every, I knew nearly every single one of the songs. I even the, the funny thing was is we went in there and the press agent before the show was saying. Um, we were talking about Crocodile Rock and he said he probably won't play it now we've said it and I just remembered going into the conversation not feeling very strongly about Crocodile Rock but the thought of him not playing it upset me and then he played it and it was brilliant and it's it's just such a tacky throwaway pop song but it really did it, it really did the business it's like Sorry, a Neil yeah, Sedaka song it's like it's like a song oh, that God. would be written in 59 yeah I, I'm, I'm named after a Neil Sedaka song so uh, yes I can totally I can totally identify with that yeah Oh, calendar chick. I love Neil Sedaka. Uh, no, exactly not. Uh, I love. Uh, I love the fact that Neil Sedaka is a twelve-year-old boy from the Catskills trying to impress his mummy at eighty. Oh, yeah, at yeah. eighty years old. You have written these four books, and you have yes, said yeah. the human is the important thing. Flaws, inspirations, and dysfunctions. Can you tell me how Thurston Moore, Henry Rollins and Dave Grohl and the team who have put together Ninja Tune are in any way flawed? That's a good question. Henry is, uh, Henry is, is, is spoken voluminously about his flaws. And I think with the Black Flag book, a lot of people did a lot of heroic things and a lot of people did a lot of bad things during that era. And, and for me, that was, uh, that was kind of the sad thing about doing that book was I, I went into it with this sort of, rose-tinted glasses ideal of underground music and, and what Black Flag had, had achieved. And I'd even already read Wallens's, um tour diaries, Diary which were an absolutely grueling Never read, read them, but, but like, I, I've seen him uh, read them on, on stage mm. or, or give accounts of it, yeah. It's, it's an astonishing book. I mean, it's incredibly hard to read, but it's, it's really good. But I, I had no idea just how deeply the enmity went and... Uh, and so that's the thing is, is you know, I think the, the, the truth is, is <laughs> if I'm really honest with you, I'm not entirely sure Dave Grohl does have any flaws. He's an incredibly nice person. Um, yes, famously. But, great, but, great memoir out in paperback, The Storyteller. It's just no, I've not read it yet. I, I, I should. But um, I, I do feel like, I, I feel like everyone's got flaws, haven't they, really? And, and those are the things that often are the root of the art, you know, and it's um, just making sense of your contradictions. Like the new, the new uh, Kendrick Lamar album has just come out, which is... Um, a pretty powerful and not necessarily easy to listen to record. A lot of it is him engaging with his own conflicts and his own flaws. And I think that's partly what makes it uh, a very compelling listen. And, and him and artists that you can identify with is he is putting himself out there and he's not preaching. Uh, he is speaking very poetically about his own shortcomings and recognizing them and, uh, you know, in a certain way, inviting us to, to have that same amount of introspection. So, um, yeah, the guys in in Ninja Tune are probably I don't know they, they were very impressive too. It was it was it, you know again it's this underground ideal that powers most of those other artists it, working in a different way and, and it was interesting because it, it was to be their twentieth anniversary book and we had to cover a lot of different artists and so it ended up being kind of a kaleidoscopic thing where we were interviewing lots of different artists but just giving them like a page or two to themselves as well as carrying on a narrative and it was really interesting because i think it's it's a music that that is still kind of under recognized like moax was like cooler as a label i guess on some surface level but ninja tune what they've done to 
you know, even just by starting big data records and facilitating artists like Roots Maneuver and uh, K Tempest just made an, a massive impact upon British urban music. I listened to the K Tempest record and it was one of those, and forgive me because this is music critic shorthand, I see they've made their album again. You know what you're getting with K Tempest. And I've, not, I've not spent a huge amount of time with the, the subsequent albums. Um, I, I, I reviewed the second one and, and I, I, I just seemed to miss out on spending a lot of time with their records. I did think that Everybody Down was just an astonishing piece mm-hmm. of work. Just like it, It's a, a narrative piece of work. It, it's almost an audio book set to reads uh, and, and written in verse. But it, it's a really great story and it's incredibly, you know well well told and very empathetic writer and and it's it's so rousing it's like a great movie that's over in 45 minutes and, and it's got so many levels to it it's an astonishing writer um, yeah. i think you're right i think well no one else but... does it which is the thing or if you do it's a copyist she is what i call an archetype one of the many theories i've got about music is that you've got the archetypes and the copyists um so for instance james brown archetype michael jackson copyist um kendrick lamar may well be seen as an archetype someday, uh, even though it probably goes back and back to um, Tupac, I suppose, the Black Horns, or Gil Scott Heron. But I'm fascinated with how all these musics fit in. One thing I haven't got, just because, and I'm sorry to say this, I prefer tunes to noise. Uh, I spotted your book. I was in Waterstones Piccadilly and I saw the book Psychic Confusion, Sonic, uh, which is yes. all about Sonic Youth. And the first sentence of the book is something like, this could only have happened in New York. That's a good lead. That's a good paragraph. So can you just distill oh, yeah, in about 60 you. seconds uh, this great book about Sonic Youth? Oh, just talk well, you know, that, I, I was approached last minute to write it and, and basically said, could, could you write this book in th- three months? And they were my favourite band and they remain one of my favourite bands. And, and again, they're a very inspiring group. I'm not sure. I, didn't want, I, I wasn't interested, I guess, in investigating their personal flaws so much because I wouldn't have contact with the band because they were actually doing an official biography at the time, which I didn't know when I signed on to it. But what I did instead is I kind of investigated a lot of things that were happening around them and that shaped them. And so it's talking about hardcore and about no wave and about punk rock and non-musical art movements. And I think that's what's exciting about Sonic Youth is they synthesise all this stuff into something of their own and that in itself has become this very important compound influence on lots of bands that have followed since they're like it's like a prism through which you can listen to american underground culture and and, and make your own way from there backwards and that was longer than 60 seconds i'm sorry johnny no that's pretty good that you didn't uh, repeat or deviate or hesitate um like it's, it's kind not of... mallet's mallet is it it's uh you know, oh no support, <laughs> no I'm, I'm very young i just about got that one I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I'm more kind of um, wonky donkey and and deck, but we'll, okay. we'll leave that in. The uh, the book is Psychic Confusion. Uh, Sonic Youth come across like a kind of Roxy music band, very or a Velvet Underground kind of band. Do you think history will remember that? Because as we're seeing, a lot of non-white musics are being promoted by this generation. So do you think the kind of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Sonic Youth era? Um, will fade just because other musics like hip-hop, which is now 40 years old, become more important? I don't know if they're important or not. It's different audiences, isn't it? I mean, I think we've got to be really aware of how young people are are consuming music now, which is um, 
often through streaming. And, and one of the great things about streaming is it lets you explore everything. And so people are, you know, I, I'm always very impressed. I, when I speak to young artists now, they're often incredibly eclectic and they've got a very wide and diverse you know, palette of things that they're listening to. And um, I think that's very encouraging. And, and something else is that they're not necessarily bound to the present moment as well. They're exploring the past as well, which is what I always felt was the real promise of streaming music. You, you mentioned how you've now hit the age where you're ready to start exploring uh, this great unknown area of jazz. I remember probably reading Thurston Moore talking about jazz and for the first time feeling like, oh, okay, I should listen to this music. And just spending ages in the Tower Records in Piccadilly in their jazz section, which was so well-stocked and so very expensive and just like wandering these racks and just feeling like, just want to know what all these records sound like. And we can do that now. And I think that's the thing with young people. They're finding new ways to absorb everything and they're fascinated in everything and they take all these different influences. And I think, and also, you know, I would say patent as well. They're, mm -hmm. they're these influences that people are finding. And in many ways, they have the same cultural space as the bands that influenced them did. Like the Velvet Underground was a hidden thing for a long time. You know, there's the classic quote about how a hundred people, a thousand people bought their album and each one started a band. You know, th th that continues through. And I think in many ways, Sonic Youth are going to end up being that sort of band because they open so many doors of possibility and inspiration, whether it's the detuning of the guitars or the abuse of the amplifiers or the crafting of that into something accessible, which is what they did for a while. I just feel that's always going to have something to, it's, it's always going to speak to a, a certain inquisitive artist and it doesn't really matter where they are and where they're operating. I think the influence will still be there. I went to see Kim Gordon play a few weeks ago and uh, I was one of the older people in the room, which is Ooh. always the case, but I didn't really expect it uh, at a Kim Gordon show. So she, she still has a really important uh, influence. And, and these people as well, it's not just the music. It's like Kim is an iconic figure. I think uh, for for women, for for everyone, but especially for women, because she was a pioneering figure of of women in in music who didn't have to didn't have to take second place and were able to be themselves. She's got an incredibly powerful, abrasive, and unique voice, and and she's never compromised. And I think that's that's a fantastic and inspiring thing. Here, here. We haven't got much time, so do you want to talk about Coldplay or At The Drive-In and the Mars Volta? Uh, I never want to speak about Coldplay. You saw them uh, at the Emirates. Chris Martin is more Manilow than Marilyn Manson. Great line. What was interesting about that review is that underneath it, it had The View on Twitter underneath your piece. Oh, okay. The people on Twitter commenting on the review or on the No, show? that's not just the gig, but that's what music reviewing is. You either pay someone to go to the gig or you get fans <laughs> to do a hashtag and... Uh, I wonder what fans will make of new music from the Mars Volta, which you've been interested oh, about. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I, I love it to absolute death. I just think that they're, they're a fantastic band. And also one that's been slightly misunderstood, I think, over the years. And I've, I've interviewed them numerous times. And when they surface, people talking about them in context of prog rock. And I've always felt that, like, I always felt there was, like, a, a connection to eccentric electronic jazz from the early 70s mm -hmm. in there, like the Miles Davis stuff. Yeah, Ornette Coleman, certainly. Yeah. They scrunk exactly. guitars. Yeah. Exactly, but like, um, you know, for Omar, the, the, the core reference point would be the, the Latin music that he was brought up on, which is incredibly difficult to find in this country, uh, much to my chagrin, and is, is makes up the, the more expensive purchases I make on Discogs.com. But it, it, the, the music of Fania Records, uh, salsa music, I, for me, like, it was a music that I had no knowledge of before 
listening to this group and then Omar was always pushing me to check it out and I'd buy the odd CD and at some point it just clicked and, and for me that's the great thing about music journalism is it, it offers you a chance to open your world a little bit and, and music journalists uh, we, we've got this uh, skeleton key that lets us open multiple doors to scenes and universes that, that we might not necessarily find on our, on our own volition and, and for me if I can hear something and it opens up a new world and it makes sense to me where previously it was just a noise and, and that's uh, a big thrill for me they were they were my way into this latin culture this salsa music and i think this this caribbean influence which they have as you know two L- L- latino men um it, it's been unacknowledged but i think it's always been present in their music i think it's going to surface in this new stuff and it definitely is is present in this first single that they've shared and the video is astonishing i mean omar's this great guitarist and songwriter and composer and he's also a great filmmaker and it's just i mean it's, it's sickening for me to with you that's right. That's right. Um, too good for school. And for those who don't know, Mars Volta, which was a splinter group from At The Drive-In, bombastic, sinewy, post-hardcore sound, hot-footed, breath-stealing, high-wire punk rock. Copyright Stevie Chick. You should do their sleeve notes. You've already done sleeve notes for Madness. Uh, when I, they're... Did, I, did, I, did, um, I did the sleeve notes for, for Mars Volta's box set that came out last year. They're, um... Oh, I see. So it's... it's... It's you, you've I've, be, I've beaten you to the post, really, but uh, but yeah. So they're um, a fascinating group, and, and I hope to be writing about them a lot in the years to come. Mm, so yeah, so yes. A fifth book is in the works, and you did say you can't talk about certain things, so I'm not going to press you. Okay, well, that's uh, there, there, there are clues, but yeah, it's it's very exciting. So and and I will be absolutely intolerable talking about it when I can. So enjoy <laughs> these few moments where I'm not just going on about the fifth book. All I own is the track Televators, which has that mm. the lyric Auto da Fe. And this is not a band that will be commercially successful. You have to really dig in and work hard at the Mars yeah. Volta slash at the drive-in music. So I look I forward think, to reading a lot about that. I think the thing with them as well is, is you, you say it's not going to be commercially successful. It actually was. I remember seeing them do Two Nights at the Astoria, I think, oh, wow. in 2005. Uh, two sold out nights at the Astoria rest in peace and um, I just remember feeling this is this is what it must have felt like to be seeing Led Zeppelin in 71 or something it was just the same kind of or 73 whenever they were doing like the, the, yeah, the 75 minute version yeah. dazed and confused it was just that same sort of fearless thing and I think there's always an audience for this kind of music that doesn't fit music that lasts more than three minutes and sprawls out there um, as much as people love three-minute pop songs, and I dare say Mars Volta were about to give us an album of three-minute pop songs. That kind of epic stuff that they were doing, oh, there's always an audience for that well. As well. Televators is a three-minute pop song with a hook and with some falsetto, and certainly not, like nothing I've ever heard. I was a bit yeah. too young, but now I can go back and listen to At The Drive-In stuff. I remember hearing One-Armed Scissor and thinking, nope, nope, where's the hook? Where's the hook? <laughs> Can I just, you mentioned the Astoria, I wanted to finish because you are, um, I guess you're going to lots of gigs this summer, as well as Green Day, yeah. what else have you got lined up? I'm going to see Pearl Jam, I know that as well. Oh, and then after that, it's all vague, yeah, other, other than that, I've not planned anything, I just, uh, it's, it's, I get asked to do things and then I go out and do them and that's, that's, that's enough for me, but so I'm definitely doing the Pearl Jam show. Uh, so what's your favourite big, middle and small sized venues? Oh, that's a good question. Can I, can I include ones that... I'm no longer with yep, us. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, the middle size is the Astoria. 
Uh, I cry I cry bitter tears every time I go through that part of London that it's no longer with us. Just an amazing room. And great sound. They re, they they overhauled the sound system just before they closed it, which is makes the end of it doubly sad. Best small venue is uh, I'm gonna say the garage in yep. Ivory. I've not been to see a band there for a long time, but there was a period in the nineties where I saw so many bands that meant so much to me. Uh, and the best large venue, oh, they're crap, they're all rubbish, um, or, or they're all okay. I mean, the sound can be awful, it can be good. It, it seems to be hit and miss, but you, you're not going there to have the same experience you are in a tiny venue. So I don't know, I find I find big gigs and, and big stuff like that to be a bit alienating. Again, that's why I'm not massively interested in seeing The Stones in 2022. It's just a guy on a video screen. Yeah, um, yeah, we could we could see that at home. Glastonbury's brilliant because you have multiple cameras. It's like watching Wimbledon yeah. it's, or, or Test Cricket. It's it's much better have pausing for a loo break than um, oh god man weeing in a bottle. You, you, you're singing my song now, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, Stevie Chick's four books uh, include Psychic Confusion about Sonic Youth, Spray Paint the Walls by Back Flag, Ninja Tune, Twenty Years of Beats and Pieces, good title, and Foo Fighters, the band that Dave made. Stevie is available for commission. And uh, the website is steviechick.co.uk? Or or .com. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful summer and enjoy Green Day. And I hope maybe you're going to be pulled up on stage. It's my time, isn't it, Johnny? Well, thank (laughs) you so much. I've had a lovely time.